for allowing me to be here. It's a huge privilege for me to come and open up the word with you. Like Nate said, he and Bethany are dear friends of my wife, Abby, and I. I wish she could be here this morning. We've got three little boys, um, a boy who's seven at the end of this month, and then a four-year-old and a one-year-old. So we've got our hands full, and it's tons of fun. Um, but it is a privilege, and I've really been looking forward to opening up God's Word with you. So please pray with me, and then we will go to the Word together. Please, God Almighty, make us worthy of your calling and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by your power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in us and us in him according to your abundant grace and the grace of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Meet Tiffany. Tiffany's in her early 30s and she's married with three young children. Tiffany is a churchgoer. She's present more Sundays than not. In fact, she's been attending church from the time she was a child. Technically, Tiffany is a stay-at-home mom, although her online presence suggests that social media is her full-time job. Unfortunately, she doesn't make the most benign comments and posts either. She's not known for simply posting pictures of the family and wishing friends and acquaintances a happy birthday. Instead, she expends her energy and creativity stirring up an irritating conflict. She's a very opinionated person and she has no trouble sharing those opinions with others. Tiffany likes to feel like she's in on things and knows what's going on behind the scenes. When someone likes her posts and her comments, it makes her feel exhilarated, important. One of the first things Tiffany does after her alarm goes off in the morning is check her notifications. Meet Al. Al's in his mid-70s and he's old school, which also makes him crotchety. He's in church every week holding his tattered King James Bible. Al firmly believes that the Christian flag and the American flag belong side by side on the platform at church. If you visit Al's house, then you'll notice a Make America Great Again yard sign in a prominent place on his front lawn. Al's favorite place to be on weekdays at 7 a.m. is his local diner. He's known at the diner among his buddies and the waitresses for his vocal political opinions. He constantly berates the local politicians for their liberal and progressive policies. He doesn't believe in big government, you see. Meet Judy. Judy's an empty nester in her late 50s. She belongs to a multi-site church in her up-and-coming community. The campus that she attends averages 3,000 people per service. The pastor loves to talk about God's amazing grace, and he reassures the congregants that God truly has a wonderful plan for each of their lives. Everything about the worship experience is positive and uplifting. The lights and the music are professional and aesthetic. The atmosphere is vibrant. She especially loves the handcrafted coffee they serve in the lobby before and after the service. It really feels like they're reaching their growing community for Christ. As an empty nester, Judy has discovered that now more than ever before, she has lots of time for herself. One of her best friends is named Betty, and they talk over the phone often. It's not uncommon for their conversation to fixate on the latest juicy gossip among their small circle of lady friends. Whenever Judy hears a new bit of drama, she is eager to share it with Betty. 
Judy has noticed a growing tendency to gravitate toward the wine bottles stored on top of the fridge. Before, when life was busier, it was just a drink, with or after dinner. But now her drinks are more frequent. She expects to have a drink at lunch and dinner, and sometimes she starts before lunch. Since she stays at home most days with no responsibilities, it doesn't really affect her life. Meet Henry. Henry's in his early 20s, and he's an earnest young man. Like so many young people, he has passion and zeal. He really wants to make a difference in this world. Henry grew up in a conservative Bible-believing church where he heard the gospel and made a profession of faith in Christ. After graduating high school, he moved back, or excuse me, he moved to the city for college and attended a secular university. During college, he got involved with a parachurch organization on campus. This student org was exciting and attractive. They wore graphic tees and torn jeans, and they talked about their experiences with God. They planned and organized mission trips and endeavors, which for them meant housing and feeding the homeless in urban centers, digging wells in sub-Saharan Africa, and running literacy programs in third world countries. In their small group Bible studies, they didn't encourage talk about doctrine because they didn't want to alienate any particular denomination. They wanted everyone under the banner of Christian to feel welcome and participate. Henry enjoyed his involvement in this group much more than his podunk home church. It seemed as though they were deeply impacting the world for Christ. Now, those scenarios that I've just described for you are not unlike what was happening on the island of Crete, an island off the southern coast of ancient Greece in the first century. Um, so, just to set the background for the passage that we will study in Titus, the occasion of the letter is this. Uh, Titus had, or excuse me, Paul had a ministry companion who traveled with him, helping him plant churches and strengthen these churches named Titus. And on one of his missions, it seems that Paul had planted several churches on this island, and he left his ministry partner, Titus, behind to put in order what remained. And in this letter, the, the positive occasion of it is he charges Titus with the responsibility to appoint elders, pastors, overseers, all referring to the same office in these churches that they left behind. And he urged Titus, these men have to be godly and gifted. They have to have certain character qualities of godliness, and they have to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who oppose. That's the positive aspect of the occasion of this letter. But there's also a negative side to it. Because in these churches, uh, they were being infiltrated by false teachers. And um, in fact, the, uh, the character of people on this island of Crete was known for being corrupt. Perhaps you'll remember a famous verse from Paul's letter to Titus, where Paul quotes one of uh, the prophets, you know, one of their own, a, a national from this island, who said this about the kind of people that live there. He said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So these false teachers were seeping into the churches, and here's the problem. They were propagating false teaching, things that didn't accord with sound doctrine, which led to ungodly living, which in turn caused slander against the gospel, against God's word. So this is the urgent situation on the island of Crete, and Paul charges Titus with this very sobering responsibility. Appoint elders in these churches. Preach sound doctrine. 
So if you read through the letter multiple times, you'll notice a cycle that becomes the overarching theme for the letter. And the cycle is this. It is that sound doctrine leads to godly living, which adorns the gospel, which prevents God's word from being slandered by those who do not believe nor trust in Christ. That's the cycle that emerges. Sound doctrine leads to godly living, which is important for our testimony in the world, which adorns the gospel. Or to put it differently, the right bishops, and by that I mean elders or overseers or pastors, not the Catholic or Episcopal understanding of bishops, but the right bishops leads to the right belief, which leads to the right behavior, which prevents blasphemy. That's the theme. That is the occasion for this letter. Over and over and over, Paul tells Titus, insist on sound doctrine. Preach these things. He lists out character qualities for older men, older women, younger men, younger women. Insist on these things because the testimony of the gospel is what's at stake. And this same cycle, these same elements are what appear in our passage for, for today. So if you would, open up your Bible to Titus 3, 1 through 7. If you need a Bible, in the Bible, in the back of the pew, it's page 998. If you need a Bible, you can open up to the passage there. So this is Paul's charge to Titus. He begins in Titus 3, 1, remind them. So here's the theme. I'm going to tell you this is the, the takeaway, the lesson for the day from this message. It's this. Remember, since God saved us solely by his grace, we must be zealous for good works. Again, here it is. Remember, since God saved us solely by his grace, we must be zealous for good works. So Paul returns to a refrain that he's trumpeted for Titus over and over again. Remind them. This is the responsibility of a minister of the gospel. This is Titus's responsibility. This is the responsibility of the elders that Titus is going to appoint in these Jesus communities on the island of Crete. They are to exhort in sound doctrine, to remind God's people of what is true and what is right. Now, the way he phrases that suggests that Paul, on his mission, when he preached the gospel, people came to faith, he made disciples, he gathered them together into local churches, he had taught them the truth. He had taught them about godly living and what it looks like in real life to follow Jesus. And he's telling Titus, you have to stir people up by way of reminder. They know these things are true, but they need to hear it again. Um, the, the scriptures tell us in Hebrews that that's why we gather together on the Lord's Day to be exhorted to love and good deeds. You see, because the, the thing about us is we have a sin nature. We gravitate towards sin. Our hearts for the Lord grow cold. We need to be reminded and stirred up to live in line with sound doctrine, to be zealous for good works, to have godly character. Remind them. And this is the responsibility of a minister of the gospel. So here's an application. This one's for, for Nate and I, at least, and anyone who's called to be a minister of the gospel. This is our sobering responsibility, Nate. This is what we're called to do. Remind them of sound doctrine. Uh, there is no greater task. There is no more serious responsibility in this age while we wait for the coming of Christ. In one of the other pastoral epistles, when Paul is training another ministry protege, he says to Timothy, Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. 
Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So our perseverance in the faith depends on sound doctrine. Our sheep, their perseverance in the faith depends on sound doctrine. This is our responsibility. Remind them of the truth. And it's very sobering. I had sort of a surreal experience this week. On Monday, I spent some time with a friend who was in town, and I hadn't seen him in about five years. He and I graduated from university together. We were um, on the student body council together. We studied the same thing. We were both history majors. And he went on to be a politician. I went on to be a pastor. And um, I was talking to him, just catching up. And he was talking about a meeting that he's had in the Oval Office and uh, all the dignitaries and officials that he knows, important people who are well-connected, and all the decisions that he is responsible for and um, all that's tied up with that. And it was a very um, stark contrast. It was a surreal experience to just compare and contrast the trajectory of his life with the trajectory of my life. You know, I'm kind of tempted to think, well, you know, what I've done since college was really not as important or significant as what you've done. It doesn't seem like it's made as big of an impact, had as far of a reach. But this passage tells us there is nothing more important in this age than exhorting in sound doctrine. People's very salvation, their eternity, depends on it. Remind them. And there's also a responsibility for you as the sheep. And your responsibility is to guard yourself against false doctrine. To receive the sound doctrine from your pastor as he expounds the word with a humble heart in glad submission to God's will and to guard yourself against false teaching. There are so many hucksters out there, especially on the internet. And one of the downsides of the last year is they are trying to create a following for themselves and they want to snatch you away. They want to make you their sheep. They're after likes and listeners. They're trying to prey upon wandering, straying sheep and they want your ear. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful the kind of teaching that you listen to and don't be deceived into thinking that teaching uh, you could listen to false doctrine and it be of no consequence in your life. False doctrine will lead you down a path of ungodly living that does not honor the Lord. This is exactly what was happening on the island of Crete. These false teachers that uh, Titus is supposed to rebuke with all authority, Paul tells us at the end of chapter 1, they were fixated on Jewish myths and endless genealogies and quarrels about the Mosaic law and things that were unprofitable for people, and it was leading people into ungodly living. If you pump through your stereo and your earbuds false teaching and you get fixated on it, weird stuff about the end times or numerology in Scripture, making odd connections in the Bible, it will lead you into ungodly living. It is your responsibility to listen to the sound doctrine from your pastor among God's people. So that's the first part, remember. And that's, that's Titus's charge. His command is to remind them. And next comes the content of that command. That is, what is Titus responsible to remind the believers on Crete of? What is your pastor responsible to remind you of? And the summary of it is this. Be zealous for good works. That's what we need to be reminded of and stirred up as we gather on the Lord's Day. 
Be zealous. Be eager for good works. So we continue on in verse 1. He says, remind them. And here's the first of seven qualities. So Paul lists through seven qualities. And it seems like maybe he chooses that number uh, to communicate the idea of fullness, a comprehensive, a complete life of godliness. That's what we need to strive after. So we'll take the first two qualities together because they relate to one another. And they're in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. So he's speaking here of the civil authorities of human government. Um, He instructs believers to be submissive, that is, to place themselves under the authority, gladly place themselves under the authority of human government. He uses the same word, be submissive, when he's addressing wives in the way they relate to their husbands and slaves in the way that they relate to their masters. That is, to be obedient, to put oneself under the authority of another. And this is the consistent witness of the New Testament that believers are to submit themselves to human government because God institutes human government for their good. God instituted human government to punish evil and to promote good in society. It is the way that he organizes society. And it's our responsibility to gladly submit, to voluntarily place ourselves under their authority. Uh, True Christians are not anarchists. They are not rebels and insurrectionists. Now, Jesus was falsely accused of that, and that's one of the reasons why he was executed. Barabbas, the true insurrectionist and murderer, was released released in his place. Jesus died in Barabbas' place as a a so-called rebel. So he's falsely accused of that, but Christians don't live their lives that way. They gladly submit to authority because it's instituted by God. As believers, we ought to avoid disrespecting and slandering authorities. Even when we disagree with their policies and their principles. Of course, there's an exception to the rule. Paul would never say that we must obey governing authorities when they tell us to do something that clearly violates God's will. Like Acts chapter 5, when the apostles are preaching in the name of Jesus and they are threatened to no longer speak in the name of Jesus and they'll be punished. They said we must do God's will rather than men's will. But in those cases, uh, we must respectfully dissent, and they must be in instances uh, where we would be in clear violation of God's will if we obeyed our governing authorities. Those situations will require deep Christian maturity and discernment, but our default position should be respect, to listen, to obey, to follow. So here's some questions for reflection. Is your default attitude towards the government submission? Do you speak respectfully about government leaders even when you disagree with their policies and principles? Not only verbal word, but written word. That's the first quality for which we must be reminded and exhorted in sound doctrine. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. Here's the second And that is in verse 1 as well, to be ready for every good work. So the way Paul describes this, he has in mind all kinds of good works. He's he's progressed, moved forward from talking about things that relate to our civic responsibilities. And now he has broader in mind all good works that we can engage in. 
uh, as I mentioned before, the exhortation towards good works is a dominant theme. So he, in, in this list, it's one item in the list, but it appears in many places over and over again. In uh, verse 8 of chapter 3, Paul's going to say, I urge you to insist on these things so God's people may devote themselves to good works. In verse 14 of chapter 2, uh, Paul says, The purpose for which Christ gave himself for us was to purify us as a people for his own possession, that we might be zealous for good works. This is the reason which God saved you, and that is to serve him. Jesus died. He shed his blood to make you zealous for good works, for serving him, for having godly character. Um, the importance of this cannot be overstated. And to be ready for these good works means, as believers, we need to be eager to perform them, looking for opportunities. So here's some questions for reflection. Are you eager for good works? Are you working out your salvation? Are you training for godliness? Uh, there's a false teaching out there called easy believism or free grace, and that totally undermines this admonition to be zealous for good works. There's a, there's a viewpoint of salvation where, um, where uh, the believer, all the believer needs to do is to pray a prayer and ask God to come into their heart, and then they're saved, and then what they do thereafter does not matter. And as we're going to see in just a minute, our works by no means cause or affect salvation. Only Christ's work purchased salvation for us. Our salvation is not dependent on good works, but good works are the absolutely necessary evidence of salvation. That's a kind, easy believism is a kind of false teaching that would lead a person into ungodly living. Jesus died for you, not just to get you into heaven when you die. He died for you to make you zealous for good works, and he expects you to serve him with fervor and with zeal. His very testimony for the watching world depends on it. So be ready for every good work. Here's the next quality in verse 2. To speak evil of no one or to blaspheme, to slander no one. This command curbs the natural, um, our natural sinful tendency to malign other people to speak in malicious ways. There's a bit of an interplay in this letter uh, when Paul is talking about the kind of character uh, that older women should have and younger women should have and younger men should have and slaves should have. There's a repeated refrain in chapter 2 that they should live this way so that the word of the Lord will not be slandered. That's his concern. It's for the testimony of Christ which we portray to a watching world that's lost in sin. And we ought to live in a certain way so that the testament of the Lord will not be slandered. And though sometimes it is slandered, you know, though sometimes people malign Christianity for the things that we believe because of our convictions from the Bible, we must never return slander for slander. That's what he's concerned with. Speak evil of no one. Our words ought to always aim at what is constructive and edifying. Even when we disagree, we ought to do it in a respectful and constructive way. 
I mean, Paul in this letter, if you read the end of chapter 2, he sternly rebukes the false teachers, but he also tells Titus that Titus must insist on sound doctrine and rebuke them so that they will be sound in the faith. His overall concern was for them to repent and come back to the truth. He wasn't attacking them just for the sake of attacking them, being harmful, but he wanted them to be sound in the truth. Sometimes uh, we will have to uh, rebuke and correct and exhort but it is for the purpose that souls will be saved, that people will come to a knowledge of the truth, to tell someone the truth in love. Well, that's the most loving thing you could possibly do. And sometimes the occasion will call for that. But we can never resort to slander, to speaking maliciously about other people. So here's some reflection questions. Do you avoid slander? Are your words aimed at what is constructive and edifying? Are you careful with your words, both written, typed, and verbal? Do you apply this command to people you know personally and people you don't know? Sometimes we just think, well, if I don't know them personally, then I can say whatever I want about them and it doesn't really matter. But that's not true. There's still a person created in the image of God. You treat your words that way, the testimony of the gospel depends on it. The salvation of the lost depends on it. What's the next command in verse 2? It's to be peaceable, or literally, to not be quarrelsome, to avoid contention. This is also one of the qualifications for pastors, for overseers. Titus 3 says, they should not be violent, but gentle not quarrelsome. Believers ought to be people who avoid quarrels and arguments and conflict. Quarrels and strife are not constructive, they are destructive. Proverbs has dozens of negative things to say about conflict. Conflict is to be avoided at all cost. There's a proverb that says, the beginning of strife is like the letting out of water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. And the imagery there is like a dam that's got a crack in it and it's leaking water. Eventually, the dam's going to blow wide open and the water's going to come rushing out. So the beginning of strife, contention, disagreement is like that crack in the dam that's letting out water. Quit before the dam bursts and the flood comes rushing out. Conflict is something to be avoided. We are to be people who are peaceable. Romans 12 says, As much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all mankind. We are to promote peace. Here are some questions for reflection. Do you avoid fights in your relationships? Or do you look for fights? Are you the kind of person who thrives on drama and conflict? Do you avoid conflict on social media? Or do you look for it? You know, are you looking in the comments section to see, to see who, who threw egg at somebody, just looking to jump in? When you engage in disagreement, do you do so in constructive ways focused on solving problems 
or do you irritate and inflame problems? We've all done this before, right? Sometimes it becomes more about the fight than actually solving the problem. And we've probably done that in our marriages more than in anything else. But is that you? You know, are you focused on actually solving the problem or do you get sucked into the conflict and entrenched in argumentation? Believers are to be peaceable, not quarrelsome. We care about the truth. And the next quality is gentle. And this quality closely relates to kindness. It could also be translated courteous or yielding in the way that you relate to other people. Um, as I quoted before, when Paul gives this qualification as the qualification for an overseer, he contrasts gentleness with violence or with bullying. Are you a gentle person, a, a yielding person? Consider it. So let's ask ourselves, are you considerate in the way you relate to others, continually seeking their best interest? And the next quality, the final of the list, goes hand in hand with that. He says, showing perfect courtesy to all men. And this quality is comprehensive and it sums up the list. Uh, being courteous is the character quality, the trait of not thinking too highly of yourself, yet serving others. Not being fixated on yourself and self-centered, but looking to the needs and interests of others, showing perfect courtesy towards all people. This must be the standard for the way that we relate to other people as Christians. So here are the question for reflections. Is your ambition to be as courteous as you can possibly be towards others? We live in a drive through culture, don't we? Where you cut people off to get in line, you bark out your order, you pick up your order. If it's wrong, you complain about it, and then you get on the highway and you go back to your life. We're not exactly experts in courtesy in the way that we relate to other people. But this passage says that believers must do everything they can possibly do to show perfect courtesy towards all men. And do we apply this principle to all of our interactions in person and online? So that's the so first we started with the command. The command is to remember. For Timothy, for pastors, it's to remind them of sound doctrine. And the content of that command is be zealous for good works. Because that's why Jesus died for you. He died for you so you would serve him. And this is what that looks like in real life. Be zealous for good works. And then he gives the cause for this command or the reason that supports this command. And the cause is this, because God has saved us solely by his grace. And that begins in verse number three. So what he does in verse 3 is he summarizes our former condition before we knew Christ when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, lost, hopeless, and helpless. And this is the way he summarizes our condition. And here he, lifts, he lists off seven vices that our lives were characterized by before we knew Christ. And these seven vices parallel the seven virtues that we're called to now as born-again believers. And this is what your life was like before you knew Christ. And I hope as we read this, you won't be thinking other people out there, but you'll thinking, 
You'll be reflecting on your own life. This is me. This is my personal testimony. So he begins in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish. The way he phrases that is very emphatic. The, the words that he uses in the original and the way that he arranges them. For we ourselves formerly once were this way. He's calling the believers. He's calling Titus to remember and the believers on Crete to remember this is what your life was like before God radically intervened and caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is what you were really like in real time. And the first quality is foolish. And what that means is um, void of spiritual understanding, no knowledge of God and his ways, no receptivity to God's truth. You were foolish. And he says you were disobedient. And this is a term that just refers generally to our rebellion against God in our sin. Foolish, disobedient. And then led astray. This is the kind of language that comes from Isaiah 53, that famous passage that talks about our sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. In our sinful state before knowing Christ, we were deceived by the devil, by our own wicked desires, and off the path led astray. And then he says, enslaved to various passions and pleasures. And this described our life outside of Christ, that our sinful desires that come from our corrupt sin nature and the curse of sin, we were a slave to those desires. Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Um, we were held captive, bound, darkened, and dead, hopeless and helpless, literally enslaved to our own wicked desires, carrying out the evil desires of our heart, living in rebellion against God, hopeless and helpless. He continues to describe our condition, spending our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And this just refers to the general animosity of unbelievers, of lost people in this world. Uh, in this world, according to a lost person's perspective, you've got to look out for number one. You know, you need to do everything you can do to win, to come out on top. And that is formerly the way that we lived our lives, passing our days in malice and envy, malicious thoughts, thoughts for evil towards other people, envying them, coveting them, being jealous of them, hated by others and having animosity towards others as well. And if you read that list and you think, wow, this describes a really debauched, corrupt person. That's true, it does. And what we're meant to realize is that was our life before knowing Christ. That's why Paul says, remember, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. And could I challenge you that if you don't if you don't see your life in these words, the Apostle Paul would have seen his life in these words. He would have said, this was my testimony. The Apostle Paul, uh, before Christ met him on the road to Damascus and radically changed his life, uh, he, on, on the one hand, was a very devout, zealous, pure Jew. But on the other hand, in reality, he was a corrupt sinner through and through, a man of hatred and malice no matter how good he looked on the outside. I can personally say that this is my life before knowing Christ. I can see myself here. 
This is exactly what I was like. Living for myself, just caring about myself, looking out for number one, not really concerned with the plight and well-being of other people. I think Paul wants to accomplish three things by reminding us of what our life was like before knowing Christ. I think he wants to uh, engender gratitude. You know, this is where you were when God found you and God saved you. So you ought to be overwhelmingly grateful for what he's done and be zealous for good works in turn. I think he also wants to nurture humility in us and a love for lost people. Uh, People who have trusted in Christ are no better than those who haven't trusted in Christ. The only difference is God's infinite mercy and saving grace and your good works will adorn the gospel for the lost so that they can come to Christ and be saved as well. So remembering where you came from should nurture humility in your heart. I think the other thing he wants to do is really show the ugliness of sin. This is what sin looks like. It's not a pretty picture. We ought to forsake it and be zealous for good works. So that's what life was like for us formerly until God intervened. And that's in verse 5. He states that God saved us. And he's very clear about what motivated God to save us and what didn't motivate God to save us. So he says, first of all, what did motivate God to save us, and that is his goodness and his loving kindness. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that is God's tender mercy. As a sinner, um, there is nothing desirable in us. There is nothing in us that would attract God to us and commend us to God. It is only his infinite loving kindness and mercy. And to make that crystal clear, Paul says in the next phrase, in verse 5, what didn't motivate God to save us? It's not by works which we did in righteousness. Uh, None of your good deeds, none of your moral character or your behavior commends you to God, saves you, or makes you acceptable to God in Anyway, that is clear, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. So we ought to be zealous for good works, not for the sake of earning God's favor, trying to make ourselves acceptable to God, but we ought to be zealous for good works because of what he's done for us. And here is what he did for us. And that is the the means or the way in which he effected our salvation, how he brought it to pass. Paul says this in verse 5. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God intervened in your life when you were dead in trespasses and sins, and he said, let there be light in the darkness. He took you from being dead in transgressions to being alive in Christ. He caused you to be born again. The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, that speaks of the work of God's Spirit to take a dead sinner and to make them spiritually alive. God saved you by his mighty power, according to his grace. Christianity is more than a creed, although it's not less than a creed. It is also an experience. Christians are people who have been born again by the Holy Spirit and made a new creation in Christ. And if you know Christ, that's what he's done in your life. So How in the world could you go back to the way your life was characterized before knowing Christ in verse 3? You've got to be zealous for good works, stirred up to love and good deeds. He poured out the Spirit on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, 
What God has done for you only comes because of your relationship with Christ, simply through faith in him, knowing him. And the result of Christ's work in our lives, he says in verse 7, is so that being justified by his grace, we must become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Uh, there's also a word play here. He said, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. And that word righteousness in the original is the same word as the word for justification, being justified by his grace. So there was nothing you could do or did that made you acceptable to God and right in his eyes. But by his mercy, by his grace in Christ, that's exactly what he has done. He has justified you and he's made you an heir of the hope of eternal life. And interestingly, that's where Paul starts his letter as the motivation for his ministry in the hope of life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And as a believer, you have that hope being justified by God's grace. You have the expectation, the certainty that one day you'll be raised with Christ and you'll enjoy the new creation with him forever. So let's return, to, uh, let's return to where we began with our fictitious characters. Tiffany, Al, Judy, and Henry. And ask ourselves, what is it that these people need? Well, for starters, they, as well as us, they need to be exhorted in sound doctrine. They need a pastor who will love them enough to tell them the truth week after week from God's word. Furthermore, they need to be stirred up to love and good works. They must realize that though works do not cause salvation, they don't affect salvation or bring it to pass, they are the absolutely necessary evidence of it. Likewise, our personal lives can either beautify the gospel to the watching world or cause the gospel to be blasphemed. And this ought to scare us to death. Simply put, they and we must remember that since God saved us solely by his grace, we must be zealous for good works. Remember that. Remember, since God saved us solely by his grace, we must be zealous for good works. Let's pray. God of heaven, we cannot thank you enough for the goodness and loving kindness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. You have saved us not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to your mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You've justified us by your grace and you've made us heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Please make us zealous for good works, ready for every good work, and please cause the power of that kind of a testimony to radiate out to the watching world so that the lost will come to Christ so that they'll come to enjoy and experience the same thing that we have graciously been given. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.